Hi everyone, my name's Brett. I have our Bible reading for us tonight. If you need a Bible, we have some up the back. Stick up your hand and you can have one. Uh, it's on page 253 if you have a Bible from the pew. It's Second Samuel 16, verses 5 to 14. It's an event in King David's life, the second king of Israel after Saul. He's being pursued by his son who's looking to overthrow him. So 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore, me, uh, restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Thanks, Brett. Chapel Lane, good evening. Great to be with you. Uh, my name's Tim, and uh, it's a real privilege to be opening up God's Word. So uh, let us pray as we do that right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You haven't left us by ourselves to work out who you are and what you've done for us, but you have given us your Word. And so, Father, we pray that as we open it tonight, that you would have our hearts and our minds in your hands and that you would be molding us and shaping us. Father, we pray that we might walk out of here loving you more than before, perhaps even loving you for the first time. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for, for a few months of my life, I lived in Northern Ireland. And when you live somewhere for a short period of time, you have to cram all of the touristy things into that short period. And so with my tourist hat on in Northern Ireland, I visited the Shankill Road. Now that name may not mean anything to you. And in fact, if you were unaware of the context, you could be taken in by the warm welcome you received from this mural. This is what you see at the beginning of the Shankill Road. Welcome to the Shankill Road. It says, we are proud, resilient, welcoming. They're the words 
underneath the three hands at the bottom. And to reinforce the welcoming nature of the Shankill Road community, the word welcome is written in 20 different languages on that mural. That's just above the hands. German, Russian, Arabic, 17 others, all saying welcome. How lovely. But there is one language that is conspicuous by its absence. Irish. You see, this is the centre of Protestantism in Belfast. And the Unionist Protestants, who are mainly British by Catholic and politics, don't get along all that well with the Republican Catholics, who are mainly Irish when it comes to their politics and their culture. And so the welcoming mural includes four images in the four corners. And uh, what that communicates to visiting Catholics, those four images, something like, we've been in wars with you. We burn bonfires about wars with you. We paint murals about kings who won wars against you. And then in the top right, it's a boxing glove. We really like boxing. Presumably that's because they get to punch people in the face. Now, don't get me wrong, the Catholic side of uh, Belfast has murals which are just as inflammatory, so much so that the peace walls in Belfast uh, still exist. The gates still need to be locked at night time. And when you hear peace wall, think eight metre high concrete wall with barbed wire on top so that it's hard to throw things at your enemies on the other side. That's still Belfast today. And it's a picture of what is wrong with religion. At least as far as the argument goes, these are two groups of people who read the same Bible. They have the same God, the triune God of Scripture, and yet they are engaged in the same conflict against one another and have been for, in differing levels of tension, decades, well, centuries. Serves as a parable to the common wisdom that we sometimes hear. When religion enters the scene, violence is never far behind. So with that intro, welcome to the third week of our Term 4 series, Asking for a Friend. Whether you're regular or you're visiting Norwest today, whether you're in person or online, whether you're a Christian or a skeptic, it is so good to have you here. And we are asking the question, doesn't religion cause violence? Isn't that just what religion does? And we start off with a little known episode of violence from the Bible, which is very Shankill Road. And Brett read this for us before. I say it's very Shankill Road because it's an act of violence from one warring faction of a nation against another. Both factions consider themselves to be following the God of Israel. Both factions hold strong political views. Both factions have an instinctual capacity for violence. And this passage is going to help us with our first point for today, which is that, the, uh, is that violence comes from the human heart. Essentially, we're going to see that violence is a broader problem than just religion, though religion is tied up in it as well. And then secondly, we're going to see that there is a human who transcends violence. But let's start with violence coming from the human heart. Grab your Bible. We're in 2 Samuel 16. Have a look at verse 5. That's where we're going to begin And we read these words, As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Girah, and he cursed as he came out. So let's set the scene here. David has just been rejected as king 
in Jerusalem. His reign has been toppled by his son, Absalom. It's kind of been like a military coup. And Absalom has now uh, won the hearts and minds of the people so that they uh, want him to be king. And so David has to leave Jerusalem because it's no longer appropriate nor safe for him to remain there. And he's got his few remaining allies, allies with him. And he's walking out from Jerusalem in this walk of shame to a little town called Baharim. It's on a nearby hill. Uh, it's not a long walk from Jerusalem to Baharim. Think like afternoon stroll rather than multi-day hike. Um, but it's, and it would be a lovely walk into the Jewish, uh, into the Jerusalem hillside, but it's not a lovely walk for David. He's despondent because his son is waging war against him. David considers himself to be the rightful, God-ordained king of Israel. His son Absalom considers himself to be the rightful, God-ordained king of Israel. And so into this context, we have this little battle between Shimei and David with his army commanders by his side. And Shimei comes out from the town and it seems from verse 13 that there's um, a little so certainly a very small little conflict, but there's a little geographical relevance to it. Shimei is on the hillside opposite. So it seems like there's sort of a crevice or a ravine or something in between them. And yet they're literally within a stone's throw, right? So imagine that Shimei is out there on the driveway and he's walking along and then he sees David standing here on the stage. And although David has got some military muscle around him, Shimei has got some sort of geographical barrier, uh, which allows him to feel a little bit of confidence to go, well, I'm not... I've at least got a few seconds to, um, to have a crack at the king. And so he comes out cursing. All of his rage he puts into uh, his words against David as well as his actions. He comes out cursing. Verse 6, he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. And our question for tonight is, what is it that's motivating the violence of Shimei towards David? Because it doesn't take too much thinking to work out that violence can come from all sorts of different sources. Two examples for us tonight. Example one, two people in cars have a little incident on the road. And next minute, one guy is putting his foot through the other one's windshield. Now, this is a picture of sanity and rationality. I'm sure those are his safety thongs that he's using to break the glass. Example two, a fellow shopper takes the last pack of toilet paper. And carnage ensures, ensues. How dare you leave me with one ply? The fellow shopper says, and Woolworths becomes the fresh rude people. Um, you like that one? I like that one. I, I was pretty happy with that. Um, but violence comes from everywhere, right? Every setting of our life, violence drops in. And so the question is, well, what is it that's fueling the violence in our passage? Considering it can come from just about anywhere. We'll have a look at verse 8. Right, Shimei says, you deserve to be repaid for the blood that you've shed from the household of Saul. So there is some sort of family or tribal element that's fueling Shimei. He's from Saul's household. So he's grieving the loss of his family already. 
And that's turned into rage. Absalom's now king, not you, he says. There's a political element to Shimei's rage and violence. He says, you're a murderer. So there's a sense of revenge or justice that he wants to be meted out in David. Tribalism, family conflict, politics, revenge, all of these things can contribute to violence and can generate violence from within us. But what brings it together for Shimei is his religion. He says, the Lord has repaid you. The Lord, God, has given the kingdom to Absalom. You have come to ruin, he says, presumably because of divine justice. Like you are being repaid because you're a murderer. God's seen what you've done and he is the one who is dishing this out. And the truthfulness of those statements could be questioned. But blinded by his religious zeal, that's what Shimei thinks. And so that's what Shimei says. Religion brings out and sharpens the violence. And this is exactly the point that Christopher Hitchens made in his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. I mentioned this book a couple of weeks ago, and now we get to quote from it. Uh, But the byline is indicative of the content of the book. Religion acts like poison. It makes healthy things sick, and it makes sick things lethal. And so Hitchens says, religion is not unlike racism. One version of it inspires and provokes the other. At the same time, religion has been an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and hatred. And so Hitchens would say that without the involvement of God, Shimei would be less violent towards David. He would be less justified in his prejudice. He would be less hateful in his disposition. And you know what? David, I'm reluctant to say he'd agree with Christopher Hitchens, but he seems to agree to some degree that Shimei's religion justifies his actions. So verse 9, David's right-hand man has said, well, do you want me to cut off his head? And David responds, verse 10, but the king, David, said, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all of his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. And it seems strange to our ears. But David, who is the victim of this violence, considers it to be justified in some way if God has directed it. Now, whether God has directed it or not, it's unclear. But in David's mind, at least, it's a possibility. And so he is willing to be the victim of this violence in case God has ordained it for some reason. So he directs his men not to fight back. And that's interesting to notice because if it is, and I think it is, that Shimei's religiosity has has enhanced his violence, is it not also true that David's religiosity, his fear of the Lord has prompted his peace and his non-violence? And we see that in the world around us. And the Christopher Hitchens of this world tend not to talk about this all that much. There are many examples of Christians promoting violence, sadly, to our shame. But there are far more examples in our nation and our world and in history of Christians promoting solutions to violence 
So for every crusade that happens under the banner of the cross, there is an international humanitarian organization called the Red Cross, which was started by a Christian to care for victims of war who were not being cared for. And so this leaves us with a strange sort of conclusion. Religion at times can cause violence, but religion also combats violence and works for peace, which suggests two things. First, not everybody's experience of religion is the same. And if you have had a negative interaction with religion before, then just know that your second one might not be. It's worth giving it another go. And secondly, religion isn't the root cause of violence. If it were, how could we account for it producing some of the greatest good we have in this world as well as bad? No, I think we're better off seeing religion as a magnifier of sorts when it comes to violence by individuals. If you mix someone who has a violent streak with a misguided and unhelpful ideology, then violence is what will ensue. You're going to make that streak worse. But the genesis of the violence, the starting point of it, is still in the heart of the one who is violent. And like a hose connected to a dodgy tap, our hearts have a tendency to explode when the pressure rises, when we're under stress. And so for Shimei, in his, this example, his family has been savaged. His heart longs for revenge and he sees his political opponent literally a stone's throw away. Add in a religious justification for his anger and hatred and violence is what comes out. But it's still Shimei who is responsible for his violence. He's still 100% responsible because it is generated in his heart. Now, perhaps for you, when you're under pressure, you've seen your own capacity for violence. Maybe not physical violence towards another, though it could be that. Maybe violence towards yourself, violence towards an object, a door that's just waiting to be slammed, a cricket bat that you pick up and chuck down as you storm through the garage. Maybe violent fantasies and thoughts that you suppress but are true of you nonetheless, true of your heart. A fellow driver who can't make up their mind as to whether they're going to make that turn off the street or not and so they just kind of stop in the middle of the road. A fellow shopper who picks up every apple and handles them with their grubby hands before thinking, no, maybe I'll look at the pears instead. Well, our hearts become dark places pretty quickly. And so it's a pleasant line that we tell ourselves, religion causes violence because it means we don't have to do the hard work of examining our own lives. We make the problem out there rather than in here. But that's a fantasy land because violence might be exacerbated by religion at times, but violence comes from the human heart. And the fact that we can resonate with violence stemming from within us suggests that it's a problem we don't really know how to deal with. It's a problem we need a solution for. We need a way out of our own mess. And this leads us to our second point for tonight. There is a human who transcends violence. I don't know if transcend is the best word. I tried to think about this through the week and it was the best I could come up with. But what I'm seeking to communicate is that there is a human who is, is better than violence. And there's a man who 
triumphs over violence by not being contaminated with it. And so to finish our time this evening, we're going to consider Jesus, this man, and consider him with the idea of violence through Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. So Christmas, Jesus was born. God the Son has enjoyed in perfect, non-violent, no need for violent unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, eternal bliss, beautiful relationship. God the Son comes at Christmas and takes on flesh. And so in the person of Jesus, we have all the perfection of God's character and all the experience of human finitude. And yet he doesn't sin. In his heart, there is no violence in that sense of rash, unconsidered rage. There's none of that. And that's despite being put under more pressure than anyone else. The further he is tempted, the greater his resolve is shown to be. The greater the strength of his character is shown to be. And when men come to arrest him, you might remember this scene from the Garden of Gethsemane, a disciple cuts off an attacker's ear and Jesus heals that attacker, commands his right-hand man to put down his sword. Christmas provides hope for this man is not subject to the same disease that we all are. Christmas equals hope. Good Friday. I don't know if you saw the parallels in the passage between David and Jesus on Good Friday. The innocent Davidic king whose rightful claim to the throne is rejected by Israel, endures a walk out of Jerusalem to a nearby hill. That's a walk of humiliation, of scorn, of mockery and abuse, and yet the victim is merciful to his attackers. Jesus' experience went like this, Matthew 27. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And like David, Jesus willingly endures the violence that he is dealt because he knows that God has some sort of purpose for this. Jesus' religion, if you want to use that word, Jesus' relationship with his Father in heaven impacts him in that moment that he doesn't fight back, he doesn't get his own way but he entrusts himself to his father in heaven and he trusts that God has a purpose for what is going on. And the purpose that God has in that moment is that our violent hearts might be cleansed as judgment falls on the only nonviolent heart that our race has ever known. Good Friday, justice. Easter Sunday, That Jesus, though dead, now lives. The hope that Christmas brought, the justice that Good Friday ensured, lives. It cannot be defeated. It can never be taken away because of Easter Sunday. Christopher Hitchens was survived by his younger brother, Peter. And Peter was a 
guest on the ABC show Q&A in 2014. It was a, a packed Sydney Opera House at uh, Sydney's Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And he was surrounded by radicals of just about every stripe on the panel. And the show finished by one question from the audience that every panellist was invited to answer. And the question from the audience member was, which dangerous idea do you think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? And Peter Hitchens, who doesn't share the atheism of his brother, said this. The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. And that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all if we reject it. It alters us all as well. You see, if there is one thing that Easter Sunday does as Jesus rises from the dead, it shines a light in dark places. It shines a light on sinful hearts. And it's dangerous because light is startling and unsettling if you're in a dark place. There's no room for the darkness to remain if the light shines on. And so it can be unsettling, and it might just be that Jesus' light is startling your sinful heart right now. And I want to say, embrace the light. Don't run to the darkness. Because any life that is governed by the resurrection of justice and hope will not become more dark. It will not become more dangerous. It will not become more violent. Imperfect it will always be, but that heart will be led to its knees in confession and repentance for it knows its own darkness and it knows the hope of the light of Jesus. And so it will want less of itself and more of Christ. For he is where beauty dwells. He is where hope is found. He is where life and light is. And so, Chapel Land, I'm going to give you a chance to consider for 30 seconds just to reflect on your heart and the beauty of Christ as revealed in the gospel. And during that time, the band's going to come up, and then I'm going to lead us in a confession for those who would like to. So take 30 seconds to think and reflect. The words of the confession will appear on the screen. And if you would like to join me in confessing your sin to our great God, for I am as sinful as any, then I invite you to say these words with me together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have left undone what we ought to have done, and we have done what we ought not to have done. We have followed our own ways and the desires of our own hearts. We have broken your holy laws. Yet, good Lord, have mercy on us. 
Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared to mankind in Jesus Christ our Lord. And grant, merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a godly and obedient life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Chaplain, I invite you to stand as we prepare to sing. And as you stand, hear these words. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ pardons and absolves all who truly repent and believe his holy gospel. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love.